Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Last year, we had a behaviorist on the show, and it was a very popular episode. Check out episode number two on behavior problems versus training issues. The behaviorist I had on the show has since moved out of the country, and our time zones just don't line up very well for a follow-up interview. So today, I'm bringing you someone new, Dr. Lisa Radosta of Florida Veterinary Behavior Service and Dog Nerds. She is a sought-after speaker, has authored textbook chapters on dog behavior, published in scientific journals, and today we're lucky to have her on the show discussing fearful dogs. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. So I'm wondering, to start us off, what is your dog story? I, like probably most veterinarians or dog lovers, always wanted a dog, like as long as I could remember. And there's all kinds of things that keep you from getting a dog, like in my family, financially. We were in a tiny apartment. We had a new in our living room because we didn't have a place to put it. So, um, And we were that family that was in the canoe every weekend. So I always remember those things. And my first dog was a a black lab named Duchess. And um, I remember that my dad would not let her in the house. And that was a really big, it's just a big deal. But I think the biggest thing about, I think my dog's story really is that at every juncture of my life, every big change, every painful event, there was a dog, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't mean they just were present like in the room. I mean, there was a dog who was at the center of recovery or of pain or of growth. And so I can think of all the dogs I've had and and the horses and the cats, you know, and all the animals I've had. But really, it was the dogs who were always in that pivotal moment of growth or of pain or of joy, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do you have any dogs right now? I do. I have a yellow lab named Maverick. And whenever I say yellow lab, I always think to myself, he's really just a lab. Like, why do we say the color? Like, what is that? <laughs> lab people. Now I'm a lab person and I have to say the color. So I have a lab. Uh, Maddie is uh, eight, and a half, eight and a half in May. So he's a little over eight. And, um, and I have a black cat. And that's it in the house right now. Not a very full house. Yeah. We have just one dog right now and I'm itching, itching for another dog. And yet the coronavirus thing makes me think on the one hand, lots of time. On the other hand, very challenging socialization situation. Yeah, I just wrote a post on our Facebook page, which my friend told me she's putting into her, uh, she has a dog training facility. She's putting into their newsletter uh, about that. You know, I keep hearing from people, I just got a puppy, now's a great time. And I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but it is the worst time, the worst time to get a puppy for so many reasons. Like you said, you can't go to classes. And even it, they're okay, you say, well, you know, I'm an experienced dog owner. I don't have to go to class. Okay, that's fine. I would go to class and I'm pretty darn experienced, right? So I would still go. But you can't even really take your dog out to populated areas where your dog can get closer than six feet from people. So you can't have that experience. And what is normal for your dog will be you being home. But that is not normal. Mm -hmm. Even if you work at home, you still leave, you still go to the grocery, you still, maybe you have to attend a meeting for your job that is not in your home. And that to a baby who's just forming those neural connections, that is going to be a huge difference in normal versus abnormal. Because even an adult dog who are predisposed to separation anxiety, right? If you adopt an adult dog, maybe from a shelter or rescue or rehoming or whatever, um, those dogs have experienced that people do leave, right? But that puppy will never have experienced that you leave. 
and he will have experienced that not happening in the most critical time. It is the worst time to get a puppy, but it's a great time to get an adult dog from the shelter. That's perfect. Or a juvenile, seven, eight months from the shelter. Go down and do that instead of getting that baby from the shelter or a breeder or whatever. Although, you know, a seven, eight month old may not have had a good socialization either, depending on where they came from. I've been sharing a lot of articles on how to socialize despite this and from some trainers and um, not necessarily behaviorists, but people who have programs and different things on raising puppies. And there's some good ideas there, but there's nothing that beats that, you know, hands on with lots of people touching it and, and, you know, being able to be in a crowd and be okay. In my head, I keep thinking, if I had a puppy, what would I do? I feel like the only thing I could think of is like, to have a friend open up their gate and then be far away, <laughs> let the puppy in to play with this adult dog that is has a good temperament. And, you know, like my friend would be on opposite ends of the yard, <laughs> not touching and then let the dogs play. But even that is really challenging because you can't step in, you can't do a whole lot. You can't step in. Yeah. And part of that puppy gaining, uh, you gaining that puppy's trust is being there. Mm-hmm. when the puppy needs you. And so, yeah, I just tell people just to wait right now. Hopefully it won't be that much longer, I hope. Although if somebody has a deposit down on a litter, I guess you might as well go continue with that plan. Otherwise those pups will have no homes because they're they're on the ground, they're born. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that is a tough one. If we look at the research, we're going to want to keep that puppy with its mother. If we if we just take emotion out and our bonding with a puppy and anyone who's got a rescue dog that is any age older than six months, we all know they bond with us. Like, come on. So it's not a bonding moment, but that puppy is better off socialization wise to stay with his mom mm-hmm. for sure. We can't let him stay too long. I mean, we really can't let him stay past 10 weeks. We've got to get him socialized to people before 12 to 14 weeks, but he could stay a couple of weeks with his mom and be better off than coming to our house and being kind of isolated. It's it's a hard one. It's a hard one. Yeah. Um I've when I interviewed someone, this is um I don't know if you know Jane Killian. She created Puppy Culture. It's a program for yeah. puppy owners. Yeah. She mentioned that because the dog's nose is so strong, and I'd love to hear your perspective, you know, you might just be able to park your car near where people are walking by and give them some visual and you know olfactory stimulation. In the meantime, you won't get that contact with a person, but some of that may be helpful too. Well, you know, something's better than nothing. I think that probably is what she's saying is there are so many elements to any stimulus. There's the scent, the touch, there's the, um, the visual of that person or that thing, that car, that truck. And so, yeah, you won't get part of that stimuli the visual part or the touch, you won't get that, but you will get the scent. The question mark, nobody has the answer. There's no research that answers this. Is the scent enough? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, what I think we really have to be sure we are honest with our, our pet parents about is that the biggest, biggest part of having a healthy temperament is the genetics given to that baby by its mama and its daddy. Mm-hmm. You can socialize a very fearful puppy who's genetically fearful and he will be fearful at 16 weeks. He may not be as fearful as he was at eight weeks. So your socialization will do something. But socialization is not, as I believed it was years ago, as a magic pill. Mm -hmm. The research doesn't support that. The research supports that what you got in your DNA, it's not your destiny, but it is what will most likely guide the course of your life. So it doesn't have to be that way, but there's a probability right? Not a prediction. It's a probability. Yeah. That's the direction the river is flowing. So you're going to have to do some work to, to change things. Before we jump too much further ahead, I want, I want you to tell our audience what a board certified behaviorist is. What does that designation signify? Yeah. So board certified veterinary behaviorist is a veterinarian that did a residency in behavioral clinical behavioral medicine and pass the boards. And there's all the hoops you have to jump through and publish your research project and and see it a certain number of cases and on and on. And so it's like being a board certified surgeon or dermatologist, we're board certified psychiatrists. And so we're going to look at 
the problem in a way that includes neurochemistry. So we're going to do an applied behavior analysis as well, look at the behavior, but we're always going to be considerate of the neurochemistry and other body systems. So if I have a patient with IBD, could that cause him to be irritable, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to looking at the behavior in a vacuum because behaviors don't occur in a vacuum. Now, when you um, began veterinary medicine, did you intend to go the behaviorist route or did something in your experience kind of push you that direction? I had three, in my mind, I had three options. So when I entered veterinary school, I already knew that I wanted to specialize in something. And there was neuro, so neurology, dermatology, and behavioral medicine. Neurology is a lot of surgery, and I am not good at surgery. So that was a no. Um, And then dermatology, although very exciting, did not excite me like behavioral medicine. It was just, you know, it's something that you just... I mean, you know, when you just love something, Mm -hmm. when you don't have to think about wanting to do it. Yeah. I mean, there's days I don't want to get up and go to work because I just don't want to get up. I want to sleep. But my greatest joy is to sit in the exam room. I love being a part of that. I love training animals. So I picked the thing with the most, that bring me the most joy. And, And through which I thought, and I think think, you know, looking back 20 years ago, my thinking was correct that I would help most animals this way because I can help a lot of animals as a dermatologist. Don't get me wrong. It's just that there are other people that could probably do that too. And there's not that many of us that are out there trying to help animals in this way. So Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It brings me a lot of joy. And how would somebody know that they need to seek out a behaviorist versus a trainer or someone who does dog psychology or something, you know, all those other titles and names that people might call themselves. We all kind of work together. So there are some dog training professionals in my area that I work really well with and the referrals kind of go back and forth. So if your pet, speaking to the pet parent, if your pet has uh, an aggression, anxiety, uh, phobia, or fear issue, that is an issue that has a neurochemical component And you should see at least a vet. Some vets are really good with behavior. Some aren't. And then that vet may not feel comfortable with behavior modification and may refer you to um, an applied animal behaviorist, which is equivalent to a human psychologist. These are people with PhDs, master's degrees. They understand uh, uh, applied animal behavior. Uh, Or they may refer you to a veterinary behaviorist, or they may not feel comfortable with behavioral medicine at all. And you have to go straight to a vet behaviorist. A vet behaviorist then is going to build a plan and work with a dog training professional and or and might be a veterinary technician and an applied uh, animal behaviorist. So we do have this big group and we can all work together and we all kind of approach it in a different way. So we're looking for anxiety, aggression, arousal, phobia. Those have a neurochemical component. Those are going to be purview of of the vet. And that makes it sound like that's the only place you should go. And that's not what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say that's kind of where you start is with your local vet. Kind of like if you were in an accident and you injured yourself, you might go to your doctor, but then the doctor gives you a referral to a physical therapist and maybe a therapist if it was traumatic and, and kind of, you know, they manage the medicine. Yes. You are so good at analogies. That is so good. That is perfect. Cause I would have done the analogy different and it would not have been near as effective as what you did. I love that, that you, you do have all of those pieces and they're all a part of recovery. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. What is your favorite issue to deal with? Which, which issue do you feel like, yeah, this is my thing and I'm good at it. And I really enjoy helping clients work through this. So I got to tell you, I love it all. I really do. There isn't anything that comes into the exam room, any problem that comes into the exam room where I'm like, oh gosh, I just love it. And if it's a hard case, then that's cool too. Like I'm not, oh my God, it's going to be hard. No, it's like, let's figure this out. Let's look some stuff up. Let's ask a colleague. Let's sit down with a journal and figure it out. So I, I don't have something that I just love the most or just dread the most. I really just love it. Oh, awesome. And I would have guessed uh, fear because you wrote a book called From Fearful to, <laughs> it's fear right free. here, to Fear Free, a positive yeah. program for fearful dogs. Yeah. What uh, inspired you to write this book? So this book is for pet parents and there's no other book like it. It's written in a way that you can consume it 
like you would consume a potato chip. Like you eat one and you want another and another and another. It's got color pictures and it's written in language that is fun to read. So I wanted that book to be out there for the person whose dog is afraid of anything. So there's everything in there from muzzle training to storm phobia to aggression to people. And no book is going to just magically fix something that is ailing you or ailing your pet. However, it's a really good manual that's easy to read that gets people on the right track. So um, what I'm hoping is that, and it has sold really well, and that's really good. I'm hoping to get it in the hands of people who can't get help. That's always my focus mm-hmm. is the person that's in Montana in the middle of nowhere. There's not a dog training professional who's positive reinforcement. There's not a veterinary behaviorist. Where are they getting help? And the book is one of the ways they can get help. Dog nerds, the reason my partner Mindy and I came up with dog nerds is to help the person who's sitting in the middle of a wasteland where there are no dog training professionals, there are no veterinary behaviorists, and their vet doesn't know anything about clinical animal behavior. Because those are the people that really need us, all of us, our community, you know? So Dog Nerds, I noticed, has dognerds.com has some courses on there. Tell us a little bit about those courses and the type of uh, person who would use that website. Yeah, so our website is therealdognerds.com. Oh. Yep, that. So and the reason, and whoever owns dognerds.com would not give up that website. She wouldn't even answer her emails. So it's therealdognerds.com. So anyway, we have two programs, Reactive Dogs. That's for dogs exactly what you would think. They're lunging on a leash. They're barking and biting, et cetera. And uh, the other one is for noise phobic dogs, whether that be a dog who is afraid to walk down the street because he's scared of construction sounds or a dog who has storm phobia. And um, I say again, again, this is not a replacement for a human being who is highly skilled, right? The Mm -hmm. idea and what my dog training friends, I should call them partners here do is the client will take, let's say the dog nerds reactive course, it's $149 and it's if they work through it, it will take about three to six months to work through. And so that they take and the dog training professional supports that. So they do their home visits and they support what they're learning. And that way their client has videos, handouts. They have online support from us. Um, a lot of clients, pet parents do it by themselves. It's definitely doable. There's no doubt they can do it by themselves, but it's not a replacement if you have a good dog training partner. It's really complimentary because most really good dog trainers who are busy do not have the time to make a hundred videos mm-hmm. of how to handle a reactive dog and don't have the time to write a hundred handouts. But we did that. And so it's good for those people who are by themselves and good for those people who uh, may not financially be able to come and see me or a good dog training professional and also good as a compliment to a really good dog training professional. Sounds really useful. And during this time too, when people aren't going to be going out for anything that's not super essential. Um, do you offer telehealth as well? So visits over virtual platforms? Yeah. So that, so because I'm a veterinarian, I have to have a valid client, uh, veterinary client patient relationship. And that can mm-hmm. only be established in person within the state of Florida. So Everyone who has that relationship with us right now during COVID-19 has been converted to telehealth. In other words, all of our rechecks are telehealth. Our treatment appointments that our behavior technician does are telehealth. Now, we were doing about 25% telehealth before because if a client lives two hours away and she takes her scared dog in the car for two hours, that's pure torture, right? She should stay home and I should see her via Ring Central, which is just like Zoom. so we really appreciate it. I get, you know, today I saw one of my patients that I always see in clinic, but we told his mom, you really need to stay home. Mm-hmm. We don't want you coming in. We want you to stay home. And I got to see him for the first time ever in a year and a half. He was happy. He Aww. looked happy. I was like, who are you right now? Your tail's wagging, your ears are up because coming to see me is so stressful. Any vet, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we love telehealth. We love it. Fabulous. So thinking about fearful dogs, how would you define a fearful dog versus a dog that is spooked by something or is only fearful when it comes to thunderstorms? You know, how would you define a a globally fearful dog? What's that dog act like, look like? 
Yeah. So we first want to start to think about, and I don't want to get too in the weeds, but first we have to think about fear versus anxiety versus phobia. Anxiety is anticipation that something is going to hurt you that isn't physically present as a threat to you. So that's anxiety. That's going to come in flavors, specific anxiety, noise anxiety, uh, generalized anxiety. Then there's fears, right? Be fearful is normal in a lot of contexts. If we weren't fearful of getting a ticket or getting hurt, we would drive 100 miles an hour everywhere we went, right? So fear is an important self-regulator of impulse, but it can go awry and can become a serious detriment to quality of life. So fear is that normal physiologic, emotional response to something that is a threat to you, okay? And then there's phobia, which is a fear which has become irrational and is expressed an out-of-context um, magnitude for the stimulus that's present. Okay, so first we have that. Then that skittish dog is a fearful dog. And I really love that you brought that up because I hear people inadvertently, in a subconscious, you know, inadvertent way, downplaying what their dog does. He did I, today in an appointment I heard from my pet parent. He didn't bite. He just put his teeth on him. Mm. And I said, let's have a discussion. His teeth were on him. He bit him. Like, let's not make believe that something different happened than what happened. Because if we make believe, we can't actually treat the problem because we're not recognizing the problem. So if an animal is skittish, he is fearful at that moment. If he is fearful in three or more situations, or if you can't identify what he's fearful of because he's fearful so much of his day, you probably can call that a globally fearful dog. A lot of dogs who, who appear globally fearful or have generalized anxiety truly are, are noise phobic dogs. Because imagine, you know, bringing that cognition level down to a two year old or a three year old and walking. Your pet parent puts a leash on you and takes you to do something you're really excited about. And randomly, this is the key, at times you can't predict there's something that scares you, which is the scariest way to live because you cannot control something you can't predict, right? So a trusted friend takes you to do this thing you think you're going to enjoy. And Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, it's the scariest thing you've ever done. And the rest of the days, it's not. Those dogs can look globally fearful. And they are actually noise phobic mm. because they start to shut down from the environment. I can't go for a walk. And that leads to urination and defecation in the house because I can't be outside to go to the bathroom. I'm going to have to go to the bathroom here because it's not safe outside. Mm. So that core, though, is the, is the noise. That happens a lot down here in Florida because of the way we live. Mm -hmm. This episode is sponsored by Adina Pearson Nutrition. That's right, when I'm not talking doodle, I'm helping women of all ages find peace and joy with food. I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in eating disorders, emotional eating, and breaking free from yo-yo dieting. Struggling with food is common for a lot of people even when life is normal. With the added stress of today's required social distancing and anxiety over what the coronavirus pandemic means for our individual and collective future, feeding yourself in a normal and healthy way can get derailed. If you struggle with any level of disordered eating or obsessive thoughts about food, you will likely see an increase in these thoughts and behaviors during times like these. Or you might feel great pressure to eat just right from a place of anxiety and seeking to control something only to see it controlling you back. Or you might flip to the other extreme of putting your self-care with food way on the back burner and feeling worse because of it. If you're tired of food controlling your life or simply feel confused about what, when, or how you're supposed to eat in times like these and want to stress less about it without ignoring your health, I can help you restore peace and confidence to your eating. While I'm based in Washington, telehealth technology allows me to work with clients through many areas of the United States. Visit adinapearson.com to learn more. Don't spend another day fighting with food or your body. Reach out today to get started on a life free of food worries. You go to great lengths to take care of your dog's health. Don't forget to invest in your health and happiness too. You mentioned earlier, you know, the that nature is a big portion of of 
where fearful dogs get their fear versus merely the way they were nurtured or brought up. Is there like a percentage in your head where you, you know, that you would say this percent is just ingrained versus caused by how they were raised? Yeah, so that's a really good question that researchers are now able to look at, to look at the percentage of a behavior that is heritable. What percentage of uh, aggression in a golden retriever is heritable? What percentage of seizuring, let's say, in a Belgian Malinois is heritable? So lots of research is being done. What I can tell you for absolute 100% sure is it's always both. Mm -hmm. People say nature versus nurture, and that's a, a fun conversation. But the reality is it's always both. Because behavior doesn't occur in a vacuum, and genes are turned on and off by the environment. What you eat, where you live, the way people interact and other dogs interact with, with that dog. Um, but some traits have been found to be upwards of 60% heritable, some behavioral traits. So it is just going to depend on a specific trait in a specific breed. I think a good guess would be about 50%, mm -hmm. but that's a guess. Any Anything you've noticed that's higher in... Um poodle mixes, so Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, those kinds of mixes that you've uh, noticed in your practice? Doodles. I don't want to offend anyone who has a doodle because we're all doodle, doodle people, but it's okay. Yeah. Honesty, I'm not, I don't hold up doodles as flawless, so it's fine. Yeah, we see doodles are, anything doodle is overrepresented uh, in our practice. And overrepresented to those people that don't know that term means that we see more than we should for the population of dogs. Mm -hmm. Right. So you could say that golden retrievers are underrepresented. We see less than we should for how popular they are down here. Right. Okay. So we see a lot more doodles and we see doodles who are, who run the gamut, fearful, fearful, storm phobia, of course. However, what we see a lot of is doodles who are aggressive over items. And we have a, a very popular, well-known breeder in our state. And I haven't really been uh, meticulous about matching, but I, I just wonder if we're seeing some of these doodles coming from certain places. I think it would be nice for somebody to do that research and to look and see, maybe take reports from pet parents online, take reports from veterinary behaviorists and gather those pedigrees because that was successful when years ago, when veterinary behaviorists and uh, other research professionals were looking at Springer Spaniels. Because mm -hmm. you remember Springer Spaniel rage, which is not something, a term we use anymore and we haven't in a decade. But we know those dogs have a certain type of aggression. And thanks to Julie Albright, who was at Cornell and is now at University of Tennessee, we know there's a genetic component to that. And thanks to another veterinary behaviorist who did research on that, she traced the lineage back to a certain breeder. Mm. and a certain stud dog even. So I suspect that's what's going on with doodles. There's nothing wrong with doodles. There's some lineage, some stud who is throwing off, that's an old dog trainer term, that, who's throwing off offspring who are fearfully aggressive and aggressive around items. I Yeah. And I think that would be incredibly hard to pinpoint because at least in a pure breed, they've got, once they've established breed status, there's a little bit of that closed stud book. Whereas in doodles, well, what kind of doodle, you know, was it the poodle was, you know, was it from a reputable breeder that the poodle came from? What about the golden? I can tell you from my friends in doodle rescue, one particular doodle rescue is that they're seeing a lot more golden doodles and Australian labradoodles with fear aggression or resource guarding or things like that. I think that's because there's just not as many early generation Labradoodles being bred these days. I think it's just because there's more golden doodles and there's more Australian Labradoodles and plain lab poodle crosses. Some of the other doodles are still not as high volume at this point, yeah. but it makes sense. It's a popular breed and there's a wide range of standards in yeah. in breeding right so there could be someone who has a poodle in their backyard and hey, this is a great way to make money there's all the way up to breeders that charge thousands of dollars and do all the health testing but still maybe aren't getting their originating dogs from the best sources who knows right such a 
mixed bag. <laughs> but it's interesting that you say that. I think it's so important for listeners to understand that just because they've met one doodle that was cute and teddy bear-like doesn't mean that there's an across-the-board standard where if you go to some other breeder, you're going to get the same thing from a different parents. And they're not just teddy bears. I say that every single episode. They're dogs. And where they come from makes a big difference. It does. And if you're going to a breeder, because lots of people are going to rescues and lots of people are going to the shelter and there's plenty of doodles and rescue. So if you're that kind of home where you are equipped to take a rescue dog, please, there's plenty to be had in rescue for sure. However, I think no matter what breed or doodle or whatever you're looking for, there's characteristics of breeders that are universal, good breeders. Number one, health testing real health testing, like echoing the heart of the stud and the the bitch and x-raying the hips, not down at the local vet, like getting them sent off to OFA or pen hip, going through the trouble of having the elbows done, looking for um, other health problems that that are particular to a golden retriever and a poodle. So goldens were definitely thinking thyroids. Poodles were thinking eyes. So we, those breeders would have double the things to look out for. But so that's one thing. Health clearance is for real, like mm-hmm. that you can see and you can get paperwork. Number two, this is a very lay person's test, but I'm telling you, it's worked my whole life. The breeder should act as if you're not good enough for her babies. Yes. If she acts like you are not good enough, you can put a checkbox in probably a good breeder. I remember when I got my dog Maverick from Cornerstone Labs, which is on across the state. It's four hours. I'm a veterinary behaviorist. Like, hello, come on, man. So I, I talked to her for an hour and a half on the phone. I'm like, okay, well, this sounds good. I'll come and, and I'll take a look at the dogs. And I want a juvenile. I don't want a puppy. And and I'll take an older dog and yada, yada. And, and how much money should I bring for deposit? And she goes, you're not taking a dog home. And I was like, what? She goes, No you're going to drive here and I'm going to meet you. And then we'll see if you're going to take a dog home the next time you come. That's the attitude. If she's saying, send me your deposit right away and I'll ship you a dog. It's not that everyone who ships a dog's a bad breeder. Don't take that, but they should act as if you're not good enough. They should know their dog's personalities. They should know. I don't care if it's a poodle and a golden. They should know those dogs' personalities and you should be able to meet at least one of the parents. Get in your car. Yeah, you can't get on a plane or get in your car. But after COVID-19, get on a plane, get in the car and go get your baby. Mm-hmm. Go get your baby. You're paying $2,000 for it anyway. Pay $500 more, get your butt on a plane and go get that dog. Because you want to meet those parents. You want to see where that baby's from. And that baby's first experience can't be to fly by itself on a plane. That is one of the predisposing factors to having noise phobia. Mm. So it, you know, there, there are things that make a good breeder and it doesn't matter what kind of dog you're getting. And if that breeder doesn't want to really interview you, uh, I think you should find someone else. Yeah. She needs, she or he needs to make you jump through some hoops to prove yourself worthy. (laughs) Yes. Because a good breeder is prepared to keep every single one. Yep. She's prepared to hang up the phone and have a a whole litter of 10 labs to live at her house for the next 12 years. That's what she's prepared for. Yeah. So, okay. Absolutely. I love it. You just mentioned a predisposing factor to noise phobia is to fly on a plane. Is that whether they're in the cabin or in cargo? So that was not looked at. What was looked at was dogs with with pre-existing noise phobia. And then they looked at whether or not those dogs had been shipped by plane as babies. Mm -hmm. So that would be a very good question. I would bet you it's cargo, but I don't know the yeah, it seems like it'd be much louder and no comfort or anything to kind yeah. of soothe soothe the way. What else is a predisposing factor? So there are certainly breeds who are pre, and you know the breeds like Weimaraners, right? Predisposed to separation anxiety, especially. But we have certain breeds. Uh, other than that, there aren't a lot of investigated or research supported predisposing factors. But what we know is that traumatic events, so loud noise events, can predispose to noise phobia for sure. Um, Any sort of trauma can do that. And other than that, we don't have a lot of predisposing factors, but I think what you're looking at, trauma, that's what's happening, right? Yeah. Is you're having a traumatic incident and the animal is shaped through that 
incident. And then there are certain breeds who are going to be predisposed to separation anxiety and noise phobia, especially. And those are almost always those working breeds. Those, well, well, a golden retriever is a working breed. I'm going to say those sporting breeds that are really built to move and to work and bond with people. So German short-haired pointers, Weimaraners, uh, Vichlas, really mm-hmm. wonderful breeds, but breeds that have a hard time with separation and often with, with noises. I see. There was in the last month, I believe, one of my, one of the doodle rescues that I, I know rescued 18 dogs from a breeder in Florida. And it was a, they're calling it an unintentional neglect situation. I think there was a health issue and the breeder just never reached out for help soon enough. And so these dogs were living in filth and there were puppies and there were some teenage dogs and one pregnant mom that they didn't realize was pregnant until she was shaved down, just really bad. What would you want, you know, if someone were to adopt a dog and I think a lot of them have been adopted, most of them have by now, or at least in foster homes, what would you say for people to expect adopting a dog like that, who's just lived around a lot of other dogs, has been matted, isn't used to the world outside their home, kinds of issues or, you know, what should they be prepared for? Yeah, I think the and I, again, sound like a cynic, but you have to hear my words. If love cured trauma, all the prisons would be empty. There'd be no more psychiatrists and psychologists. You can't love it out of them. Must you love them for them to get better? Yes. But you cannot love trauma or hurt or pain or neglect or lack of exposure out of a dog. You just can't. Or a cat or a bunny or a bird or a horse. So you have to come at this in a way of knowing what's happened as best you can as a pet parent. At least I know this was a neglectful situation. I could probably assume this dog wasn't out at the shopping mall, the outdoor shopping mall being socialized. Like some assumptions I can probably make as a new pet parent of this little doodle that's been rescued. And I know I am going to love him, but I'm going to seek help right now. I'm not going to wait till there is a problem because the first three months, I call it the honeymoon period of rescue. So many dogs, people say to me, he didn't bark for three months and they're presenting to me for excessive barking. Mm -hmm. Like, right, it's the honeymoon period. Now is the moment where I can the window where I can really help that dog settle in. So definitely love, love. Yes, for sure. But also be systematic. Get out your pen and your paper and write down, what is this dog afraid of? I was on the microwave and I pressed the buttons and it was electronic and he ran to the other room. Don't say he'll probably adjust. Maybe he will, but it's like wearing a seatbelt. I haven't gotten an accident, knock on wood, in forever, I still wear a seatbelt every day. So the systematic approach with a really good dog training professional or your vet or veterinary behaviors or whatever is insurance to make sure that this relationship is built on a solid foundation. This dog's been abandoned as far as he knows, and that the approach is systematic. Here's our list of problems. Here's how we're going to approach those. And here's the outcome we're looking for. So number one, you can't love it out of him. You have to be scientific and you have to approach it as if he had diabetes because that's what it is. It's an emotional disorder, right? The other thing is and maybe all of your pet parents who are listening to this are drinking the Kool-Aid and I hope they're drunk on the positive reinforcement Kool-Aid. But just in case they're not, you can't shock fear out of a dog. You can't pinch collar it out of him. You can't do that and expect the dog to trust you and come out of the trauma. And if those methods are adopted at the outcome, the onset rather, when you first get this dog, you're going to lose that dog's trust. You're going to make it very hard for anybody in the know to help that dog to live his most joyful life. So love your dog. Be systematic about your approach. Assume the worst. Plan for it. Wear your seatbelt right? And only positivity. We're not doing any kind of crazy hurting dog stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other myths or things people misunderstand about fearful dogs? Yeah. I think the body language is the biggest, to me, one of the biggest mistakes people make or misunderstandings that they have. And so today I was talking to one of my pet parents and I'm basically in the home via telehealth. I can see everything. 
and we're having a discussion about how a the dog in the family bites the child or growls at the child when the child's a big child, not a little tiny child. When the, when the child hugs the dog and one pet parent believes it's not a big deal and the other pet parent who's been deemed hysterical uh, believes it is a big deal and that the child's going to be bitten in the face. So I said, hey, look, I'm in your home. Let's do this. So they pointed the camera and there's a the little dog and there's the child. And so the child comes over and as, as she's talking, the dog's tail is wagging. So I'm like, look at that. It's a big wag. It's a wag from side to side. The dog loves you, which when we're working with children, we have to be so careful to make sure the child knows, if it's true, of course, that the dog loves her. So then I said, please sit on the floor next to the dog bed because I felt really confident because this dog had never bitten and I wasn't going to put the child in that situation. And this was a 14-year-old child. I said, okay, sit down. So she sat down. And when she sat down, his tail wagged, but he never came over to her. He never walked over. It was just a foot. I said, are you noticed that he never approached you? He actually doesn't want you to touch him, but he does love you, but he just doesn't want you to touch him right now. And I said, okay, we're going to take your hand and we're going to put your hand right on the, it's like one of those beds with the bolster. Put your hand there, right? So she did. Dog never even put his head near her hand. I said, see, he actually doesn't want you to pet him at all. And when she pulled her hand back and she sat still, he had a big stress yawn. So then all the parent, both parents and the child were able to see what this little dog was trying to communicate. We, if people could see that, because when they get their rescue doodle and they say, well, his tail's tucked, he's a little scared, but they miss the dilated pupils and the ears back and the stress panting and the stress yawning and the averting of the gaze and the licking of the lips, they can't really understand the gravity mm-hmm. of how scared this dog is. So body language, there's a bunch of body language on my website and there's a really good dog trained professional. I forgot her name. She's in California. She let me put her YouTube videos out. They're labeled with her company mm-hmm. on my website too. Such good videos. So if they go to flvetbehavior.com, which is our Florida Veterinary Behavior Service website, and they go to articles, there's all kinds of stuff there. It's not password protected. It's meant to be a place where wonderful people have allowed me to put their stuff and where we've written lots of stuff so that people can get help. But body language is, I think, the number one. The number two really probably is a subset of body language, which is that wagging tail myth. Mm-hmm. You know, that a wagging tail means that the dog is happy. And the big wagging tail where it hits them on either side, okay, I'll buy that. Or the booty all moving around. But the wagging tail low or the wagging tail above the back, not so much, right? Low, we're thinking fear. Above the back could be fear too. It could just be fear plus arousal. And the concept, now I'm going way into the weeds, but this is a concept I really want every person to hear because although it's not new to me, it's new to me. In other words, like you know it, but you don't live it sometimes. But this whole Me Too movement, I'm a big supporter of women. Of course, I am one, so that makes sense, right? So, um, But the Me Too movement has given me a way to talk to my clients about consent. So you know about consent, right? Mm -hmm. Approaching a dog in some way. It might mean just moving your hand a couple inches towards him or might be just sitting in his space and letting him say yes or no, I want to be touched. So once the Me Too movement came around, I was able to say to my clients, do you think that every person has the right to say no? And they all say yes. Every man, woman, and child says, yes, Dr. Rodasta, of course, right? So I say, okay, well, here at FEBS, we believe every animal has the right to say no. And if you believe that, you're going to have to stop petting your dog when he says no. And they get it. They get it in a way that before me too, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't get through to them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes before COVID-19, uh, I would stand very close to them. And I would say like, do you want me to hug you? Do you want that? They'd be like, no, do not hug me. I'd say, but why? You're letting me stand close to you. You must want to be touched by me. They're like, no. I'm like, yeah, your dog feels the same. Hello, don't touch, yeah. don't pet your dog that way. So that is a biggie. Do they have the right to say no? And we're all wrapped up. Maybe it's this way in other countries too. We're all wrapped up in control and everything. Like I am the boss. You have to, you know, I'm but the alpha, alpha, right. And I was watching 60 minutes yesterday and there was, um, 
I always forget names, but a really famous female lecturer that talks about vulnerability and Brené Brown. That's it. Oh my God. That's it. Right. So she was on and, and there was a air force big wig woman. I don't know what they're called in the air force. They're not generals. I don't know. The point is she was important. And so they were using Ms. Brown's concepts to manage the military. Mm -hmm. So they're going into managing big deal people who are tough with vulnerability and feelings and emotion. If it can go that far into that place, we can apply it to our animals. And by giving them control, you'll see increased compliance. That's what people don't get. They think control is about compliance. You're giving the dog control over his decision-making. Mm-hmm. That makes him less anxious, which means he's more compliant. That doesn't mean that I'm going to open the door with a bunch of squirrels outside and say, Mavi, don't chase the squirrels. Well, he's going to chase them, uh-huh. right? But I'm giving him a choice with his toenails. I'm dremeling his nails. He pulls his foot away. I take a break. I probably made a mistake. I probably put the dremel on for too long or whatever. The old way of doing it would be to hold on to that foot tighter. Now we let the dog pull away. I don't give him a treat for pulling away, but I do give him a treat for when he doesn't pull away. Mm-hmm. So it's a different way of thinking. And I, it's just so important. It's so important. It's so much more empathic, right? It's not like you're nothing. You are my dog and your feelings matter. And it doesn't mean you let the dog walk over you. That's not, that's some other extreme. That's not the middle ground of, of considering your dog's feelings and experience. Yeah. Talk to us real quick about fearful dogs that just try to escape versus fearful dogs that react with aggression. What? Yeah. Is, yes. that, is that a different biochemical thing? It's not to our knowledge. I, you always got to say to, to our knowledge because there will be research done tomorrow that'll prove us wrong, right? But um, to our knowledge, those neurochemical processes aren't different, but they are somewhat to our knowledge, um, controlled by genetics. So there were old, old experiences, uh, experiments done by Scott and Fuller, old, old, uh, 1950s. Nobody would ever do these now because they really were unethical experiments, but a lot of knowledge, socialization periods came out of those studies. Mm. And, and so what one of the things that they examined was what is, or one of the fruits of the studies that they did was to look at the difference in expression of fear, whereas a terrier gets busy, frenetic, right? A beagle curls up in the corner. What's the difference? It's the genetics, because they're all raised in that same laboratory environment. These were not owned animals. These were laboratory animals. And so we see that in our own personalities. I'm of Italian descent, and I'm spicy. I just am, right? And it's just a part of my genes. Whereas I have friends who are really different. Their coping mechanisms are different. So the difference in those animals, honestly, is probably zero. They're both scared, but their coping mechanisms, either through genetics or through life experience, is different. And so they look different on the outside, but the dog who curls in the corner might be a Sheltie. Shelty's going to be going to be those ones that are going to shut down and curl up in the corner a lot of the time, or it could be a dog who's been shocked so much that he doesn't really think there's a chance that he would ever get a part in the decision conversation, right? Because that's really what that training is. When we train animals, it's a conversation and the animals have to make decisions. If you sit, I'm going to give you this piece of chicken. That's an animal decision. And when they have no control over what happens, so when a person who is really unskilled, as most pet parents are with a shock collar, shocks randomly, then we see that animal just curl into himself. He knows he has no power to change the outcome. So all he can do is freeze. And and learned helplessness is the term that most people are going to use for that. But that actually means that the animal's been exposed to that negative stimulus so many times that there is an understanding in his mind that he cannot control the outcome. There is no escape. So he just lies there and and exists in -hmm. that environment. So it it depends on the environment and the genetics, but those animals at their core are probably really similar. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, anxiety, even in people, can manifest in those two ways. Some people just kind of hole up and other people lash out and we think they're mean, angry people, but they might just be scared and have never noticed. I don't recognize that in themselves. Is the treatment different if a dog is, you know, more of an escape escaper versus a lasher outer? Absolutely. The treatment is really different. The treatment, uh, even, even the medication you choose is different. Mm -hmm. Um, and the treatment plan outside of the medication is going to focus on increasing in the fearful dog who is curled up in the corner. So the dog who is apathetic and withdrawn, we're going to focus on increases in sociability, increases in interactions, increases in bravery, let's call it, right? We're going to decrease fear and expect an increase in interaction and sociability. The dog who's the same level of fearful, same fearful dog, but is lunging and growling, we're going to focus on medications if we use medication that quiet the arousal neurochemically. We're going to teach the dog control of impulse. We're going to teach the dog coping tools that are different we do eventually want an increase in sociability, but at first we're looking for a decrease in arousal and using those coping tools that he currently uses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're turning down the volume on one and turning up the <laughs> volume on the other in a way. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Well, this has been so fun and I've learned a lot and I think our listeners have learned a lot too. Is there anything else that you feel like I really want dog owners, especially doodle, mix owners to know about fearful fearfulness in dogs? You know, so doodle owners are or pet parents. I'm trying to lose owners. I'm trying to lose that word if I can. So um, it's hard though. I've been saying it for my whole life. So uh, doodle pet parents are just like any other pet parent. They love their kiddos. Uh, I'm going to ask you to love your kiddo, but see who he is for real, because by accepting who he is and seeing who he is, you're better able to be his parent right? Which any human parent probably already gets that, the parent of a human. Um, and the other thing I would say is don't, to any pet parent, don't push aside something you see that is out of context or that you think isn't normal for a dog. If your dog's barking at people or biting or lunging, or if he's hiding during storms, if you think it's not right, it's probably not right. And then finally, I would say there is no reason in the world that a dog has to suffer. We have treatments, we have medications, we have help. There just isn't a reason for suffering anymore. So even if it feels like you've tried it all, you probably haven't. And seek help and don't, if you can't get help from your local vet, just don't stop there. Just keep looking because there's help. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here and teaching us more so that we can be better pet parents. Yep. Thank you for doing this for the animals out there because uh, getting this kind of information out to people is so helpful. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page, as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.